Welcome to The Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce, separation and co-parenting here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and driving for reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce, separation and co-parenting from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach, co-founder of Amicable, the divorce services company, and host of this, The Divorce Podcast. In this episode, I was joined by author and journalist Rosie Green. Rosie has written for Red, The Times, The Telegraph and The Mail on Sunday, and is the relationship expert on ITV's This Morning. I began by asking Rosie about her own marriage breakdown and her journey from heartbreak to happiness. I was really touched by her honest account of her painful experience of separation. We also explored the notion of rejection when you're not the instigator of the divorce and just how detrimental it can be to both your physical and mental health. Rosie spoke candidly about her experience of being a single mother, dating post-divorce and finding happiness in a new relationship. This episode is a real journey through the stages of relationship breakdown and divorce. If you really loved this episode or want to hear more episodes like this, then please make sure to rate us on your preferred listening platform. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Rosie. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start, Rosie, if I may, by thinking a bit about how this all happened and how it started. You describe yourself as a journalist who also happens to be on the journey from heartbreak to happy. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginning of that statement? So the heartbreak, what happened to your marriage? What was it like? How did the breakdown occur? Well, I'd had a very long and successful, I thought, relationship with my husband who I'd met, you know, only at 18. So we'd been together for 26 years and married for 15. And we'd had a really stable, happy relationship, you know. And and so for me, you know, for it to break down felt incredibly shocking and destabilizing and it it came out of the blue for me you know I hadn't seen it coming and it was you know uh, the summer of 2018 and and only for a few like maybe two months before you know it started to display some kind of behavior I remember I said to a few girlfriends I was a bit like oh you know staying out more and he's you know he's a bit more distant you know there was kind of all all these things in hindsight which are you know red flags but it was still a massive shock to me when he said you know he didn't want this relationship and I found some texts from somebody and um you know so I kind of I just went into free fall really I was just incredibly shocked That must have been really traumatizing. What happened, Rosie, when he actually told you then that that he felt the marriage was over? Where did you go from there? Well, I tried not to believe it for a really long time. And I think he was finding it hard to be finite about it because I think you know, human beings by their very nature, they kind of want to soften the blow, don't they? Or they don't want to, they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to feel the force of the guilt. They don't want to see the guilt. They don't want to see the sort of devastation that that they're sort of reaping in that sense so um I was sort of desperately trying to cling onto it so I was in this hideous limbo situation of him sort of saying yes I'll try then sort of reneging on it then going back to it and you know and and to be you know on my own part I was massively forcing that so I was kind of please stay you know I sort of I became someone I didn't recognize I was sort of just begging him to stay trying so hard to keep the family together, trying to hold off the time that we would tell the kids or make any sort of finite decisions. 
And I think you've described, haven't you, before I've heard you say that you'd have done anything at that point to save the marriage. At what point did it become clear to you that it it wasn't salvageable and that there wasn't anything you could do to save it? Absolutely. You know, I was on the floor. I was begging. I was crying. I was, you know, I was trying all these sort of weird and random techniques that I read on the internet about sort of pulling back or being independent or, you know, when, when I sort of just wanted to hold on to his ankles. And then I got to the stage after about two or three months of this where Christmas was approaching and I sort of had enough wherewithal even though everything was so confused you know I was sort of so confused about what was going on but I sort of thought actually I know that what you're doing is you're going to sort of have the Christmas and then you're going you know and then you're going to go and so he came back a few days before Christmas and said you know it's kind of over but I want to have Christmas for the family and for the kids and and I just said, I can't do that. It was already like sort of walking on eggshells. We're already, every conversation was ending in tears or, you know, I, I, and I was just trying my best to be this kind of perfect wife. And so I just said, no, I'm not doing it. And I remember he sort of said to me, oh, that's incredibly selfish of you, you know. And um, I just remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, is it selfish? Is it, you know, so my boundaries were so sort of blown by that point. Anyway, I went with the kids to my aunt's and it was the most hideous, hideous journey there. I mean, they were incredibly welcoming and lovely to us, but it was very hard for the children and it was very hard for me. And I'm sure it was probably very hard for him as well. But yeah, I think that was the lowest point. And at that point, did you accept that the marriage was over? How, how do you know? Because I think people often say that to us, you know, how do I know that this is actually it, that we've reached the point of no return? Did you have a sense of just knowing that or were you feeling you were pushed down a path and you just had to you know go down this path because you had no choice do you ever get to a sense of acceptance that that marriage you know the marriage was done yeah I I wish it was as simple as that I don't think I felt that I just felt like I couldn't take any more actually I couldn't you know, so busy trying to be this sort of shiny, you know, the, the person that he wanted to come home to, you know, for the first time, sort of put makeup on and for, for him coming home and ironing his shirts and doing all this sort of stuff that I hadn't done before. But I think actually, I just become so physically depleted and, you know, kind of trying to maintain this charade. And I'd not really spoken to any of my friends about it or not very many of them. And I just felt like I couldn't keep it from them any longer. So uh, at that point, I just felt like, you know, actually, it's got to come out because I need the support and I need the help and you know but also on a sort of much more practical level I could just see in his eyes it was so weird it was like you know like Elvis says you know he's lost that loving feeling he really had I could see that you know when he was looking at me it was all sort of with disdain rather than love. And did things change then when you when you sort of came out about it when you made it public that you know you were you were going to separate do you think things changed either publicly or between you or between you and your friends at that stage? Yeah, I mean, for him, you know, I think he thought of himself as a very moral man who would never leave his family or never do those things. So I think for him, it was very challenging for him because he then he had to then deal with the sort of, you know, the backlash and the judgment of everyone. And so that I think made him angrier, you know, so he he was cross and 
right. quite absent. Mm. And because I've gone from this state of trying to keep everything together to now just thinking, okay, I'm focused on doing this on my own. I know I've got to survive on my own. I know I've got to keep going for the kids. I know I've got to do all that. So I really just didn't want him to be there. So then it became about sort of trying to get him to move out. And, you know, I was getting various advice from various people. And I'm sure he was too saying, you can't be the one that moves out. You know, you need to stay put. And so there was this sort of awful period of time of sort of just needing the space for myself and for the children really but you know it was taking you know it took uh, too long basically or it felt like a lifetime and and that makes me feel so incredibly sorry for people that are in that situation for a really long time and so did things calm down a little bit when you'd actually physically separated did that put things on a more even footing to be able to think about the long term and to start to sort things out yeah I would say that was definitely the time where I started to you know regroup you know I massively drew on the strength of my friends you know I really do reach out to friends and I do ask them for help and I do tell them how terrible I'm feeling and you know I'm sure I was pretty draining for a long time you know I think I described my book as sort of chain smoking through telephone calls I go from one person to the other you know and every day seemed to present a new more dramatic twist to the story which I think kind of I almost went from it almost protected me from the sort of sadness and the pain because if it could all be drama and how could he possibly be doing this he must be mad you know it kind of helped me rationalize what he was doing rather than him just leaving you know so it's almost it's it's quite funny the way the mind works I think so the drama was in some ways kind of a a soother and, and a way of distracting you from the pain perhaps that you were feeling you mean yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. And yeah. I think, you know, I think quite often we talk about anger doing that as well, don't we? But in my case, I think it was the drama. And, you know, yeah. somebody uh-huh. said to me that, you know, looking at someone's social media, trying to work out where they are all the time, trying to get into their mind for so long. For me, it was about what he was thinking, what he was doing. Why was he doing this? What, did, you know, was he seeing someone? Was he not seeing someone? Where did he live to? Rather than about my recovery. And I remember someone saying, you know, you have to start focusing on you. And I remember my dad saying very bluntly, you know, you have to detach. And I was thinking, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, but actually it took time and it took thinking about. But after a few months of him leaving, I did start to regroup. I think it's an interesting thing, isn't it? We often see it when we're helping people through the amicable journey that that sometimes people just cannot unhook themselves from the other person and what the other person's doing and needing to know and needing not so much to control but to have a say or to be informed about and it's very hard sometimes when someone can't see that and isn't quite ready to talk about that detaching process because it, it it leaves people almost in free fall I think and that's the scary feeling when you're divorcing and separating from somebody that free fall you can't move on can you until you've got past that stage but I think the thing is the mind is a funny thing in that you are in that stage and every time you see them on social media every time you talk to them about you know talk to a friend about them every time you look at their old photos it's almost like you're getting hit of that drug so I feel you know it's good to go cold turkey it's good to talk about it to get it all out but sometimes it's good to go totally cold turkey because otherwise you're just feeding the fire. And, you, and you know, it's a bit like we all know those people who really don't want to be and no judgment because it's so hard, who are like still bitter and angry and cross like 30 years ago. Well, I mean, there's that great saying, isn't there? The, you know, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You know, if you keep being angry, you're only hurting yourself. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you mentioned there as well friends and how important your friends were. Are all friends equally important? Do some have better advice than others? How did your friends actually support you and did did they always get it right? (laughs) I think it's interesting. You know, there's um, there's a woman called Sarah Davison who's a divorce coach and I think she sort of first muted this idea that you have you know, you sort of, in, in the early doors, you, you sort of create a cabinet, really, of different people who can help you with different things. So someone who might be very practical, someone who's very emotional, someone who's that good to go out and have drinks with, somebody who's there to cry on the phone. And I definitely think that is true. And I, even in my worst times, I was aware that one person couldn't take this load. So I would spread the load. <laughs> you know, I would bring different people. I think there are some people who can't be there for you. And it's a waste of time to get hung up. I think it's easier said than done, but it's a waste of time to get hung up on them not being there for you. I think what's quite interesting is sometimes people you wouldn't expect to show up, show up, and then others can't. And I think you don't know what's going on in the background. It could be that they're struggling with their marriage and they can't face, you know, like you're a sort of big fat red warning that it's going wrong or, you know, that they, it might trigger certain things for them or just they're not very tolerant of that, but they're very good at practical help or whatever. So I think it is, you know, for people who are in the eye of the storm at the moment, it's accepting people's limitations, not letting it ruin that friendship going forward and just taking help where it's offered and not getting too resentful about the people that can't be there. Yeah, I think that's, that's that's spot on. I think you're right. Not everybody can be everything. And to try and make, you know, a small group of friends be your complete support network can be a real challenge and put strain on the friendship, can't it? I would say I'd also say the one thing is to beware of the drama people. So the people who pour petrol on the fire, mm-hmm. the people who enjoy it, you know, mm-hmm. who say, let's go around mm-hmm. and rip up all his clothes and do all that kind of stuff. Yes, you want support. And yes, it's really nice to feel other people's indignation. But... Also, I think it's critical not to let someone whip you up into that state of frenzy. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the best thing you can do as a friend is just try and hear without comment sometimes, isn't it? And just be there for somebody rather than, like you say, being part of the indignation because everybody ultimately will come to view things in a slightly different way. So being too in there with you and being too on your side can leave your friend very isolated and vulnerable if your thought processes or whatever and your relationship with your ex moves on, particularly when you've got to co-parent, you will move that relationship on. And uh, there's nothing worse than then feeling like you're sort of left there stranded as the friend, is there? So, But also, you know, now life's moved on and, and say with my ex, he, you know, there will be occasions where he will see my friends and my family because of the, the children. Mm. And, you know, I think for them, they were all pretty calm and rational about it. I mean, yes, of course, they had their own feelings, but it does mean as well that they can see him in those social situations and it's not awkward for the children, mm. which are ultimately the people we want to protect. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about this sort of moving on and shifting because you obviously were in a very hurt space. You felt utterly bereft. You did your best to save. Like you say, you begged, you pleaded. It didn't work. You went your separate ways. At what point did things start to get onto a more even keel in terms of being able to co-parent or think about how you're going to you know, split assets or do things that would put you both on an independent track? How long did it take? What sort of things were happening to get you into that space? Well, I think, you know, I desperately needed some handholding. I felt like I had kind of 
lost my sense of perspective and and there were things that he was saying to me that I didn't feel were true or right or valid you know about sort of money and how much he was going to give and you know what was the right amount and and so I I did as as that lady Sarah Davison said and I sort of gathered a support team and you know I feel very lucky that actually I have lawyers in the family and I have people that are there and able to help me but I realize a lot of people don't and that's partly why I wrote the book so I just wanted people to have access you know to the sort of advice that I had and I feel that I actually in that sense just reached out for help as well I thought you know what I can't I mean it was so painful to me to even look at the gas and electricity bills I just I couldn't believe we were in this situation where this stuff wasn't shared anymore and so I just really did ask for help on all of that but ultimately even with the gas and the electricity bills I did realize then that I was sort of waiting for people to rescue me and actually I needed to just bloody do it and it's a bit like pumping up the tires I realized you know I left that and left that and left that and then I just did it I thought oh my god what have I been making such fuss about I was so loaded with emotion but actually you know millions of people pump up their tires millions of people pay the gas bill I thought you know I'm a fairly intelligent person I'm sure I can manage this which I could so I did a lot of relying on friends but then ultimately I just thought actually I've just got to do this I've just got to do it myself and once you do it you're yeah. incredibly empowered exactly it's so freeing when you get over it and you do it I can remember the first time like I fixed something in the house I just would literally ringing everybody I've just fixed this and I've just done that and you just feel so kind of proud of yourself that normally that would have been you know, hours of nagging or eventually giving up and getting a handyman in at some extortionate cost. And so yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. It is really freeing and it is really empowering. And it's a, it's a real, it's, you know, nobody wishes this on anybody, do they? But it is an upside of this journey, that road to freedom and independence and knowing that there you can do a lot of the things that perhaps you've resisted or felt underconfident about so you know every cloud (laughs) absolutely no I 100% agree with that so you have a co-parenting relationship now with your ex and your ex and you have to communicate presumably about the care of the children tell me a little bit about how that works and how you've got that on track yeah, we've definitely got onto more of an even keel. I mean, I think a lot of me resisted having those sort of chummy chats because I, I wanted him to feel the weight of what he'd done. But actually, I realized that that wasn't really helping anyone. So we might as well have an amicable friendship. I mean, it's not super friendly, friendly, but three years on, we're definitely at a much better point And we're able to have a conversation. And I think sometimes it's tricky because, you know, you're obviously talking about the children and you're obviously talking about their emotions sort of talking on their behalf but you realize they have their own complex emotions and reactions to what's happened so I think a big thing that I see is with lots of parents is that they think the other parent is somehow manipulating the children to think in a certain way and I'm sure that is true sometimes but often it's the child that's saying I don't want to see the other parent or I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that so that's a whole nother layer of friction I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of times where parents ascribe meaning to the other parent, where in fact, it's just the normal ebb and flow of relationships with your kids. And as they grow, and as they become teenagers, and various other things, relationships do change. And it, it does take quite, um, you know, an emotionally intelligent mindset to be able to navigate that rather than just do the easy thing, which is to blame the other parent, which I think is incredibly damaging. So I, I think, For most people, most of the time, as you say, both parents want what's best for their children and aren't interested in undermining the other relationship. There's so much evidence to show that it's, you know, it's just 
not acceptable and it just has such a damaging impact on children. But yet there does seem to be a, a determination, usually because people are hurt, to blame the other parents. So it's really interesting that, you know, you note that as a feature of kind of co-parenting relationships. I did definitely feel like that. And, and I'm not sure if you've heard this expression, but someone told me the other day that you need to love your child more than you hate your ex. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's definitely that's a really good way of summing it up. But you also mentioned that the impact that your own parents' divorce had on you when you were growing up. And do you think that's had an impact on the way that you've handled your own divorce? Yeah, I think it probably has. I mean, it's certainly, you know, uh, before this had all happened, before this relationship had blown up, I'd done very minimal, although, you know, although I write for a living, done very minimal sort of looking at myself and why my own patterns of behavior had developed. And I think that is another gift of a massive split in that it does make you think about those patterns if you're someone that is introspective and actually hopefully not repeat them in your next relationship. And definitely for me, it made me realize that I... I put quite a lot of store in someone looking after me, I think, or not not looking after me in that sense, but it was the one thing that I thought I couldn't survive through. I thought I could survive through illness or survive through this, but, you know, if, that, if this broke down, I would find it really hard, which is why I went for this particular chat, because he felt so solid and secure. But actually, the, the gift of getting through this is I now realise I can do it on my own. You know, I can, and I'm perfectly able to. And yes, I love to be in a relationship because it's, you know, a lovely thing but I don't need it I don't need someone to look after me and have you moved on from your divorce and have you gone out and have you done the dating stuff and tell me a little bit about that yeah I did and actually again I think it's so hard to know I mean people are always saying to me you know when am I ready to date you know what am I ready to do but I definitely found it helpful in terms of recovery in terms of feeling like you're still alive and desirable and that there are options out there and I think that, you know, online dating gets a bad reputation and it is sometimes brutal out there, but it's also a way of meeting people. And I think if you waited around to get set up, we'd be like Jane Austen heroines, just sort of knitting and doing embroidery until someone turns up. And then you get set up with someone by your mates and you think, really, really? Definitely a double-edged sword, that one, isn't it? Because you're very judgy about the people your friends set you up with and then there's only so many people they know and after a while you're like thinking, okay, this is definitely a numbers game and I just need to get the volume up here. <laughs> exactly, and I have to say, I, I read this brilliant book before I started, a friend gave it to me called It's Just a Date and it's so brilliant in that it just sort of sets up everything as a kind of, you know, just see it as a night out, see it as a night out with someone new that's interesting and I met so many interesting people actually and I didn't think oh my god are these people I'm gonna like you know go on five dates with them are they gonna get married am I then gonna do this am I gonna do that I just sort of thought oh well you know this will just be a fun evening actually and um generally they were I mean there were a few disasters but that you know they were generally fun and what sort of things do you say to people when they ask you am I ready should I be doing it what how do you encourage or not well, I think there are stages and I think you could be ready for one stage of relationship and not be ready for another. I mean, you could just sign yourself up to an app and actually even just seeing that there are people out there or seeing the lights come in is helpful. And you could think, well, I'm not going to respond to anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to see what's out there. And even that in itself is positive. I mean, it stops you thinking you're going to die alone being more by our stations. It's all about you, actually. It's how self-confident you are feeling because I think if you if you're still really down on yourself then the thing the massive thing that I learned about dating was just that people 
respond to the what you're projecting and if you're projecting confidence you know that's so much more important than whether you've got like a killer body or amazing hair or all those things it's about what you're you know what you're saying how confident you are so I think you know it's good to build yourself up to that point where you think yeah you know I've got a lot to offer I've got a lot to bring to the table I'm just conscious of time but just thinking about you know you've written this amazing book and you said before that you feel you know very pleased that you have the chance to like pay it forward effectively put something back however you want to describe it in terms of being able to give people some hope and optimism around their journey just as as you've navigated it what really are the sort of top tips that you would give people when they're in this kind of heartbreak situation what are the steps from heartbreak to happiness I appreciate I'm asking you to summarize your entire book in a few sentences but (laughs) have a go (laughs) well I think you know actually even though all those really tiny things in the beginning seem like they won't have any Uh effect I think they absolutely do so I think all those things like gratitude lists you know like kind of getting out there and exercising reaching out to your girlfriend you know even in the early days just distraction so it's kind of like you know watching friends on repeat and I definitely think you know gathering the kids around and doing that sort of those kind of really gentle things to just really help then I think Mm -hmm. therapy you know I think loads of us don't have therapy until something really bad happens but that was massively important for me and I would just say really look after your mental health because actually as I said about the drinking and things like that you know the temptation is to go and get all that dopamine by kind of you know going out and drinking 50 glasses of rosé or you know you know kind of copping off with the PE teacher at the kids school or something but ultimately I think they're going to be that that's going to come back and bite you on the bum so I think it's about building yourself back up and it is you it was useful for me to see other people who'd navigated it and come out the other side so I think yeah you know that I'm really happy and grateful that people can look to me for that as well. Well, it's a wonderful book, Rosie, and I'm I'm very glad you, you've written it because I think there's so much in there that can help people. That's kind of all we've got time for now. I'm sorry we have to cut it short, but it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your own personal story so candidly. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Rosie? Well, I've got a website, which is lifesrosie.co.uk. And my Instagram is at lifesrosie. And those are the two main places. And then I do write a weekly sort of relationship column for the Mail on Sunday. So you can find that as well. Brilliant. Thank you. And of course, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kate underscore daily. And you can hear more about new podcast episodes by following at divorce underscore podcast. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, you can also find more of our podcasts by subscribing for updates and visiting thedivorcepodcast.com. Thank you so much, Rosie, for your time. And thank you as well for listening.